Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome back to the show Elizabeth Grace Matthew. And Elizabeth, for those who might be meeting you for the first time, um, take just a moment to tell us about who you are and what you do. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Um, I'm a freelance writer based in Philadelphia. I write a lot about books, uh, culture, religion, politics, and I spent a little more than a decade before this in the academy teaching mostly writing as well as um, leadership theory, communication, and literature. Well, I share your love of books. In fact, uh, you know, my mom and I were just talking the other day. She's in her, her late 80s, and uh, she she has a ton of books. And we were talking about, what do we do with all of these books? At some point, we're going to have to decide what to do with them. I don't have room. But I reflect on what she gave me with the gift of loving books as a very young kid. And, man, that's something that has served me lifelong. And 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 it's interesting because one of the authors who I've really loved is Roald Dahl. Um, over the years. I mean, I remember hearing his stories from the time I was a very young kid. And there seems to be this curious tendency to want to uh, rewrite or revise um, the the books written by authors from earlier times to, to make them more acceptable for, for our time. Talk to me about this trend and, and why is it happening? Yeah, thank you. So I, I too share your, your love of books as well as gratitude to my mom for really fostering that in me as well, um, reading to me from literature as a very young child and introducing me to some of the books that are still my favorites today. I think that a lot of the presentism that kids are being educated with, um, sort of to think of the past as something that we transpose onto the present, has a lot to do with this. We want these books to sort of reflect the way we would write them now, as opposed to being windows into a time that isn't now. So obviously, if you read um, Roald Dahl, for example, there are kind of, uh, I guess, prickly or sarcastic or sort of mean-spirited asides in those books that I think help to make them what they are. And I think that those uh, portions of those texts do not inculcate that kind of meanness in their readers, but actually help them to understand it and even to oppose it in many respects. Part of why Roald Dahl is humorous is because many of the things he says we would not say ourselves, even in the time when those books were written, let alone now. And that kind of broadens readers and particularly young readers' understanding of the human mind and the human spirit in ways that I fear we lose when we change these texts. You know, the, the article of your, or I'm sorry, the title of your article, Elizabeth, is why sanitizing books is actually worse than banning them. Now, I don't hear much call for people, you know, saying actually ban books. At least I, I, I can't recall anybody saying we should ban this book. But uh, I, I agree with your, your take that somehow rewriting them to me seems... It seems worse because it's it's uh, there's there's some trickery that's afoot there, uh, if, unless there's some explicit way of saying the author didn't really say this, but here's what we want you to think. Yeah, I mean, imagine watching a movie, you know, in prime time where they have to bleep out problematic language, but instead of bleeping it, they just take it away, and so you can't fully get the flavor of what it is that's being communicated, right? And I think with books, it's even more insidious than that, because if you take away, for example, 
some of the problematic content in a great American novel like, say, To Kill a Mockingbird, which some um, iterations of the novel apparently do, or there's some uh, dispute over whether to read it because of some of the language that's in there. Obviously, the language that's in it is extremely objectionable, but that's because the racial politics of the time and place that it's describing were extremely objectionable. And if you take away what is so jarring and disturbing, then it actually reduces the novel's power to jar and disturb, which is part of why we want to read it. I think when books are banned, if not entirely, but from a specific school or a school library or school district, historically, there have always been books deemed inappropriate for certain demographics of people, whether young children or whomever. And so that's nothing new. And typically people try to access forbidden fruit. But when you erase part of the content in a given book, it's a lot scarier because what it's doing is it's sort of creating this dysutopia where the book was never written. It's not that it's banned. It's that we erased it. No, I'm, I'm with you on this. And, and you make the point in your article, and I think this is so important. Um, these are things that actually happened. These, these books, the book is, it's like a building that was built, you know, uh, a long time ago. It, It really existed and and we need to look at it to you know as it existed and i i think the best excuse i've heard for for why does that matter why would we want to to see it you know in its original form um comes down to because that's how we can start to understand how people thought at the time that that book was written in fact the best advice i've ever had for how to study history is read old books because they will put you into the mindset of the person who wrote that book Rather than just someone commenting, well, this is what I think they really meant, you know, as you know, as opposed to I want to go inside the mind of what that that person was saying, for good or for bad, I'm going to learn from it, and and maybe there will be some good things, maybe there will be some things, some attitudes that I say, yeah, that's that's really not something I could embrace today. Yeah, absolutely. Being a student of literature is really being a student of how the past was interpreted through the lens of those that actually were living in it. So it's not just reading a textbook that sort of tells you, here's what happened, and then here's what happened, and here's what people thought. It's actually getting into the minds and perspectives of those that were thinking. And these books, particularly ones like Roald Dahl, that have been loved and you know made into plays and made into movies over generations, these are not just texts. They're really living things because they are reinterpreted and reimagined for stage and for screen. Um, I personally am actually not the biggest Roald Dahl fan. I'm not a huge fan of his style, but I don't want to become more amenable to the text by changing the style, right? Because I want them to be um, something I'm not a fan of because they're written in a very specific way style that isn't the one that I most enjoy. I love, you know, my 19th century novels with very long sentences that, um, you know, sort of uh, speak to a different kind of realism, whereas Dahl has, you know, some more fantastical and, and fantasy elements. And I think that it's really important that those elements remain in the text so that people that learn from them and whose eyes and minds are opened by them can continue to be so. Well, and you point out, too, in your article, you have to ask the question, where does it stop? At what point do we say, you know, really, we probably shouldn't be changing that, which uh, which is, 
a great point. At what point do we consider that, well, really nothing is sacred, so it's all subject to, to being revised and, and repackaged and, and uh, represented to us? And you mentioned you're from Philadelphia. I mean, you think about uh, the, the Constitution, you think about the Declaration of Independence. I, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be something? If somebody suddenly said, well, you know, that's out of date, too. We ought to revise that, you know, to keep up with the times. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, learning to interpret things for a more modern time is very important. Obviously, we don't adhere to every literal detail in every document that is old, right? Many people listening to this are probably Christians, right, who grew up with some iteration of a Bible. We don't literalize every single thing in that very important book, right? But to just throw it out and edit it in deference to a modern sensibility is very different than interpreting it in deference to a modern sensibility. And I think it's really important that that distinction not be lost. Okay, so Elizabeth, I have to ask you this. In in light of this trend, do you see this burning out? Or would it be wise for people who really want to appreciate books and hope that you know their kids and grandkids will be able to appreciate books to uh, start buying and, and stockpiling copies of actual physical books, you know, for the day when you you can't find an unaltered version? I know. It's always this question of like, as the dark age comes, what do we do to pr- preserve the culture, right? Um, And I uh, entirely um, think that it's important to have access to older copies of of these books pre the editing. I noticed that in the case of Roald Dahl, there was so much pushback that they've decided to continue carrying uh, Puffin has both versions of the novel. So the old ones as well as the newly edited versions. And so I expect that as books that are more beloved and considered even more classic are hit with these sorts of um, attempts to sanitize them, we will see that kind of pushback. However, you know, I'm never going to be one to say to own fewer books. So it's never a bad idea. <laughs> I like your advice. Again, we're talking with Elizabeth Grace Matthews. She's a freelance writer and editor at America's Future Foundation Writing Fellowship alumna and a Young Voices contributor. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people find you on social media? Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Um, I'm on Twitter at Elizabeth G. Matt, and my website is posted there as well. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Samuel Mangold-Lennett to the program. He is a Young Voices contributor, and uh, Samuel, I suspect you probably wear a few other hats as well. Uh, Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, first and foremost, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, Currently, I am a, uh, my my 9 to 5 gig is I'm a staff editor at The Federalist. And I'm looking at an article that you wrote uh, recently on on. The word woke, which I'm seeing pop up a lot, mainly is, of course, of debate. So you can't even define woke. And how do you even know it exists? And it doesn't really it's not really being promoted in our schools. But your article is titled Woke Effectively Describes the Left's Insanity. And that's why they hate it when you say it. Talk to me about uh, let's let's talk about what woke actually means. We'll first establish a definition and then let's talk about wokeism and and where is it taking us? Yeah, so. 
part of the uh, issue surrounding the discourse of the word woke is that there is no actual concrete definition of the word. Um, you know, it's it's kind of hard to pinpoint an exact date when it started. It's always been part of, you know, colloquial language. It's always been a slang term that's been thrown around. Um, but as I know in the article, it really started to really kind of become common in like the 2010s when the BLM protests and, you know, the whole um, quote unquote racial social justice movement really started to kick off. Um, and it really just originally was used to be like, hey, you know, be awake, be be aware of what's going on around you, just be safe. Um, but then it just it got co-opted by the by the left, by the Democratic Party, by by people who wanted to co-opt, you know, social social justice movements to leftist political causes. Um, and from then on, it was just off to the races to where it became a slogan for political posturing, for political jockeying, to where leftists would just say, you know, we're woke, we're we're left, we're woke. Kind of like how on the online right, people call themselves based or red-pilled or, you know, whatever. It's yep. just in-group signaling. Um, so woke just kind of became to mean leftist and it's what they call themselves. And along with that, it's the smorgasbord of leftist policies. You know, it's, it's any degree of Marxist nuance, any degree of socialist hoopla down to whatever gender theory or nuance of critical race theory you want to attach to it. That's what woke is. So the whole point of woke is we're on the left, but we're not going to tell you exactly what we believe. And it's up to you to figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, we're going to ridicule, ridicule, ridicule you because you can't figure it out. Yeah, or condemn you. I mean, I, I've, I saw you've, you've included some great, um, you know, visual aids within your article. Um, and, and one of them is, uh, I, I forget the, the individual's name, Toure. Uh, you know, at this point, woke is a slur. It's the same thing as saying the N-word. And it's like, wow. Talk about, uh, you know, hyperbole and taking things and, and, and blowing them out of proportion. But, uh, but it's a very real phenomenon. And, and where it's leading us doesn't feel like a very comfortable place. Why, why, is, this, uh, why is this such a, a, a um, polarizing topic? Is it by design? Is it meant to, to put a dividing line between those who are and those who are not woke? Um. I think so. At the end of the day, um, you know, left left wing causes always tend to, especially, you know, Marxist causes always tend to have that, you know, you're either with us or you're against us motive um, or, you know, paradigm. And they really hate being called out or exposed for what they are, which is extremist, which is radical society, societal changing radicals. And the fact that wokeism has been exposed for what it is they can't stand that and they can't let that continue so they have to delegitimize it and as we've seen in the past several years americans are very sensitive to race they're very sensitive to charges of racism to accusations of bigotry so if you can delegitimize someone by you know cutting them off at the knee by calling by saying you're being a racist by doing this they're going to find a way to change course or try to change course I know something that I have seen in my home state of Idaho is uh, when parents step up and say, you know, I'm really tired of woke um, ideology uh, or critical race theory or things like this, intersectionality, being taught in my kid's school. Um, the first response that you'll typically hear from the people who are actually promoting such ideologies is, well, 
We did a we did research to see if anybody was actually teaching it, and nobody is teaching it. But they're talking about this tiny, narrow definition that uh, that would only apply in the most extreme of circumstances. And because whatever they found didn't meet that, therefore you guys are just making this thing all up. I kind of see a similar approach with with woke. If you can't define it exactly the way I think it should be defined, well then it doesn't really exist. And you know, of course, you're just a fool for promoting something that's not real. Exactly, and uh, especially with like the um with like the Loudoun County school board protests, everyone would say, and especially with trying people trying to outlaw CRT in school curricula, a big issue is it's all semantics. If something is clearly teaching, you know, CRT inspired um, curriculum, but you define it as something else, then technically per the law, it might not be CRT. It's all a giant word game to these people. And more often than not, they win it. So it's a very, the right is slow to adapt. It's slow to figure out their antics. But in the case of woke, they were able to figure it out and, you know, turn it back on them. And that's part of the reason they're freaking out about it. And it's so funny because there was a time where we could still actually laugh about it. I mean, you include in the article, there's a clip from Saturday Night Live from, what, five years ago or so, um, where they're making fun of woke jeans, which... It's it's a brilliantly funny commercial, but I don't know that they could make it today because people are just simply too sensitive for that kind of thing right now. Right, exactly. And it's it's first off, it's horrifying to me that 2018 was five years ago. That's a scary, <laughs> scary thought. Um, but, you know, like I said, you know, they they called themselves woke. They were even able to make fun of themselves with that. You know, Hulu had a I think it was like a season and a half. It was a very, very short lived series call it woke where it was about how this this uh, black cartoonist was trying to figure out how to become increasingly woke they weren't ashamed of it they they embraced it fully they, they were proud of the fact that they were woke and now that woke has been you know fully come to fruition especially with you know the blm protests in 2020 everyone tearing down statues trying to fully rewrite american history and it, people waking up to it and realizing they don't like what woke is when it comes to fruition, they're saying, oh, no, we're not that. And you're racist for saying we are that. It's one of these things where you're not supposed to believe your lying eyes. Well, and something you point out here, too, is it's a reflection of attempts to control the English language. And, and I don't remember if it was Orwell. I think actually a number of pretty savvy people have pointed out throughout history. If you want to control people, you got to control their language because that controls their words and that controls their thoughts. And it just, you know, one thing follows another. And so when, when we use that word woke, it's effectively describing, you know, this, this leftism, the more radical brand of leftism. No wonder they don't want people talking about it. it this is a label that, I mean, I'm not big on labels, but this is one that actually gives me a pretty good idea. If someone says, be careful. This person is very woke. I already know. Better walk on eggshells around them. Exactly. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. It's it's a great way to you know figure out. No, unfortunately, it's the reality of the situation. It's how we know you know who can you trust and who can you you know be weary weary around. Yep. And and you you point out the ambiguity and and I find that uh, there's so much. Uh, ambiguity that works in favor of people who are seeking power. For instance, um, when people talk about, uh, well, this person is guilty of hate, you know, they're, they're offering, I guess it's called the bogus or unspecified predicate. We all know hate is bad, but telling me this person, you know, is guilty of hate doesn't really tell me what did they do? 
You know, whereas a law that says this person has committed manslaughter carefully defines, you know, this is what it takes to meet the requirements of, of you know, of committing this. But that ambiguity can be twisted into something where I'm just kind of left to make up my own emotional associations. I know it's bad, but I have no clue what it is. So an accusation can carry the power of a conviction. Right, exactly. And, you know, with hate in particular, it's such a charged thing nowadays. There are so many different things that people are accused of hating. It can go in any different direction and carry so many different charges. Yep, I guess the the lesson here, if, if I'm reading this correctly, is... Think for yourself. Be willing to ask questions. Don't let somebody dictate. You can't use that word or don't <laughs> don't say yeah. this word. Um, but be willing to think and and question everything. Um, Samuel, tell us, where can people follow you? Where can they find you on, on social media? Yeah, so, uh, you know, you can read my work at The Federalist. That's thefederalist.com. And you can find me on Twitter at M-A-N-G-O-L-D underscore L-E-N-E-T-T. And again, thanks for having me. It's been great. Welcome back. It is time to uh, say hello to Jeremiah Ludwig. Jeremiah has been a uh, guest on the program before, but uh, Jeremiah, in addition to being a Young Voices contributor, and for those who are meeting you for the first time, talk to us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do. Hello, Brian. It's a pleasure to be with you again. I am an urban economist. I work in Washington, D.C., studying uh, housing policy and its effects on uh, markets in the United States here. Um, I've been working for, for about four years doing the policy work and then about four or five years in construction before that. So I have a little bit of background uh, on the, the industry and policy side of things. Well, I'm happy to talk with you about this topic mainly because uh, we are we're in the market for a home, but just waiting for things to come back down to earth. And I got to say, I have not seen the most encouraging news of late. In fact, I'm looking at your article for realclearmarkets.com. The title is housing is actually less affordable today than in 2020, 2021. So I have to ask what, uh, what is going on there? Well, the story is pretty straightforward. Um, we've heard a lot in the news over the past year or so about how housing prices are going down finally in many regional markets. Um, the point of the article is to, to make a statement that things are actually much, much more expensive for your actual home buyers than they were in 2020 and 2021. So in 20 and 2021, prices started skyrocketing for virtually every single market in the United States because the housing market isn't just one like huge national market. It's a whole bunch of little regional markets that are all pieced together. Anyway, housing prices started to skyrocket, but it wasn't a really huge deal that the housing prices started to skyrocket because interest rates were so low that people were able to get a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at 3%, which is an incredible deal. And as a result, even though prices got really high, it didn't depress demand, and it made it so people were still willing to go out and buy housing. However, as 2022 started to roll around, we saw a major shift. Inflation started going up, and as a result, the Federal Reserve started to bring in a quantitative tightening policy, started restricting the ability of of banks to to lend money effectively. And what that did is it took interest rates, and it took them from about 3% to over 7% in a matter of months. The effects of your interest rates on your 30-year fixed rate mortgages are really, really significant. And 30-year fixed rate mortgages are the right place to be keeping our attention because that's the majority of mortgages that are, are borrowed in the United States. 
And so the point of the article is to, to point out that even though we've had some regional price cuts in different markets over the past year, as interest rates have gone up and prices have remained high, uh, it's caused demand to be depressed. And in order for people to sell anything, they have to cut their prices. Uh, but those price cuts are, are nowhere near enough to make up for the huge, huge increase in interest rates that we've had. So if we take a, a home that was around $400,000 and we look at it, if we were trying to buy it uh, – in 2021, in 2022, and today, we would recognize that in order to have a home that where we're paying the same mortgage today as we would have had we bought it in 2021, it would have to have a price cut of almost 25%. Wow. And we have had zero regional markets where the price cuts have been that high. And so I'm trying to offer a little bit of a warning to people who are shopping around in the market. Don't jump back in too quickly. Remember to keep your focus on those interest rates because that's where you're really going to be paying a lot of your money over the next 30 years as you pay off that mortgage. I love the examples that you give. Uh, you, you give us a couple of home buyers, John and Carla, and talk about their experience. Now, in John's case, he pulled the trigger at the right time, but if he had waited a year, the interest rates alone would have uh, brought his payments up by nearly 60%. Talk to me about Carla's situation because she went ahead and waited what to, what does that do to her possibility of getting into a home? Yeah, so obviously the just the ticket price on housing these days is is astronomically high. Uh, the prospect of just buying a, a fairly standard home for you know four to five hundred thousand dollars is is kind of a it's a it's you get a bit of a sticker shock from even just looking at that. Forget about talking about interest rates and how much you're really paying to buy the home. Um, it's a really high price, and it scared even a lot of people from even approaching the housing market back in 2020 when they had their best deal with those low interest rates. So if we take a, a hypothetical person such as say Carla within the article and we look at their reasoning they look at the price of housing and they're like god this is so horribly expensive I'm probably just going to wait until something changes or I'm going to try and save up some money for a down payment uh, if you're young and, and you have a family and you're trying to like find some stability before you jump into this major investment um, it's understandable that you might have reason to want to wait and not just like throw all your resources into something immediately um, but if you waited, as she waited, and you, you waited and held out for a year, by 2020, as interest rates went up by about 4% on your, your standard mortgage, uh, the prices would have gone up so high that you have, you have no chance of getting into the market anymore. And the interest rates have gone down a little bit. Um, they were about 7% at their peak in uh, November 2022, and they're currently at about 6.5%. An important thing to note is that the numbers in the article are no longer up to date, even though it's only been a couple of weeks since it was published. When I published the article, interest rates on 30-year mortgages were around 6%. They're currently at about 6.5%, so they've jumped up another half a percent. That's a significant increase uh, in terms of like how much you're actually paying over 30 years. I would have to rerun the numbers to tell you exactly how much that would be, but it is important to note that the, the Federal Reserve has not changed their policy, uh, their monetary policy over the past few months and have, had, have in fact, doubled down on it. Now, actually, I understand. Are they meeting tomorrow? I know that they're, there's, they're meeting sometime this week. And, and the question is, uh, will, they, will they bring interest rates down or will they keep them high or possibly even raise them more? Um, I don't see how they could really change anything. I don't think they could bring interest rates down and make money easier to access at this point. So I, this doesn't sound like very good news for uh, potential home buyers. Yeah. Well, ultimately, the Federal Reserve is approaching the monetary policy as they are because they have to get inflation under control. And one way you get inflation under control is just by cooling down your markets. 
cooling down activity, making it so people are lending less money. It's, it's one way to actually get inflation back under control. And all things considered, I think they're making the right move with trying to be a little bit hard on inflation right now. But consumers are paying the price for it. Um, and they're really suffering as a result of that. Um, in terms of long-term prospects, uh, the, the Federal Reserve does have week, weekly meetings. They're usually on Monday, actually. And that's okay. kind of part of the process by which they evaluate whether or not they're going to continue with their, their current uh, policies and they like they look at the past week's uh, changes in inflation and they try and make their decision based off of that. Uh, one thing worth noting from the article is that I, I don't think everything is, is hopeless. <laughs> um, we have seen prices going down in some markets. So for those markets, that's good news. Um, the interest rates are not going to stay high forever. Eventually, we will get inflation back under control and interest rates are going to go back down. Uh, it may take a year or two. So in, for the short term, it's going to be uh, tough going in the in the housing market. Uh, but over the long term, there's a lot of potential for the interest rates to go back down. And at the same time, as noted in the article, a long-term solution that we have to this is to increase housing supply, uh, to build more housing. And we've seen a, a lot of different states and municipalities around the country that have been making uh, progressive steps toward actually getting more housing built. And as that happens, it's going to bring down those sticker prices as well. And if both of those things can happen, interest rates go down and sticker prices go down, then we're going to see a, a major improvement in affordability over the next four or five years. Um, and it'll be difficult in the meantime, but I, I do think there is reason to be hopeful and not be too pessimistic. No, I, I appreciate that you point out to, you know, where there are supply issues that also contribute scarcity means higher prices for, for the existing inventory. Um, yeah, I'm in the position. My wife and I were looking to buy, but uh, when when we relocated a couple of years ago, um, there was just no way. Especially where we relocated, we moved to uh, to Idaho, which had some of the most outrageous home prices in the whole country. Believe it or not, just because so many people were moving into the state, and uh, it's it, things have settled down some. But as you point out, with interest rates where they are, um, there there are still a number of homes that uh, that we would be very interested in. But uh, wow. The, the costs are, they're a real punch in the stomach. Well, good news for people in Idaho is they're one of the handful of states that have been making some major reforms in their policies of trying to encourage more housing to be built. Um, and so when interest rates do go back down and once the market has some time to respond by increasing supply, uh, I think it'll be one of the states that we see a major improvement in affordability. Does this affect the the rental market? I mean, or is, is it inextricably tied to you know, the housing market. I know uh, two years ago when we when we were moving and, and looking for just a place to rent, um, th- the first words I heard from anybody who, who knew that we were moving was, well, good luck, because I guess the, the competition was just fierce. Does, has this played into the, the rental market as well? So whatever happens in the housing market is also happening in the rental market. If prices are going up in the housing market, rents are going up in the rental market. If you have very little supply available in the housing market, then there's going to be very little uh, supply available. That is very few vacancies in the rental market. Um, Obviously, there's going to be huge variation depending on where you are. Some places have very high vacancies. Some places have very low vacancies. As I mentioned earlier, the U.S. is a is a mess of different housing markets all jumbled together. And we can play games with estimates, but ultimately you've got to look at where you live and what the <laughs> conditions are where you live. Are you sure you wouldn't like to take just one more look at the tea leaves and just see if they're telling you anything at all? 
<laughs> I'm afraid at the at the national level, a lot of the data does come down to tea leaf reading. Okay. Again, we're talking with uh, Jeremiah Ludwig. He is an independent housing policy researcher in Washington, D.C., and a Young Voices contributor. Jeremiah, where can people find you on social media? You can look me up on Twitter at Ludwig underline Jeremiah, and I'm happy to reach out with people and uh, talk to the people about this stuff. All right. Thanks so much for being our guest. A pleasure as always, Brian. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Elijah Gullett back to the show. Um, Elijah is a Young Voices contributor, and we've got a very important topic to cover today. But Elijah, for people meeting you for the very first time, talk to us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hi, folks. Um, I, my name is Elijah Gullett, and I am a, a commentator and um, contributor for Young Voices. I work a lot on energy, environment free speech issues, and uh, urban development issues. Um, and I am a recent graduate from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Very good. Well, we're going to talk today about uh, how the Supreme Court could break the Internet. That is one attention-grabbing headline, i got to tell you. But I, I want to know more about this. Uh, look, I've talked about Section 230 with a number of different uh, commentators and writers over the last couple of years. What, what is in store that, uh, that could potentially lead to mischief regarding Section 230? Yes. So Supreme Court is currently deciding uh, and hearing opinions on two cases regarding Section 230. Um, they're each a little different, but both of them have to fundamentally do with existing anti-terrorism laws at the federal level, as well as Section 230. I focus on Section 230 because I think it's the thing that seems the most prescient for people, but both of them matter, both of these elements. And in both of these cases, it was situations where someone experienced a physical harm, oftentimes um, Someone died as a result of terrorist acts that the person who committed the terrorist act uh, got involved with based on the Internet. Um, but uh, in both situations, Section 230 is implicated. And for folks who are maybe less um, acquainted with this topic, it refers to the Communications Decency Act of 1996. And this act is kind of what undergirds all of the modern Internet. It is what provides the existing legal liability or protections from legal liability for companies like Google, Twitter, Facebook, all the major platforms uh, so that they can allow for any types of expression on there within a certain type of constraint. But the platforms essentially are protected uh, from being held legally liable for speech that someone on their platform uses as long as they do sort of due diligence, prevent illegal acts from occurring. Now, I know the easy fix is, well, we just if we can just get the government to make some kind of law, you know, this is going to fix everything. But actually, as it pertains to Section 230, there, this seems to be one of those times where, where government keeping its hands off and, and allowing the market to provide the solutions may be the better choice. Why is that? Yeah. So currently there's like a lot of debate. It's been going on for a couple years about wanting to abolish Section 230 or severely reform it uh, to prevent the government from protecting uh, these companies, basically, or giving these companies legal liability uh, and making it easier for the government to regulate speech 
or to go after companies who are allowing speech that they consider undesirable. Um, I think on first at glance, we kind of like want, you know, justice for people who've been harmed. And also I think the stuff gets wrapped up in culture war and uh, partisan politics a lot of the time. So uh, we, you know, if we're worried about the censorship of say people who say the types of things we like want to say, you know, we kind of want policies that go after companies that are preventing these folks from using those platforms, right? Um, the reason we want to keep government off of this, though, is because these broad liabilities are basically what allow any kind of free speech from happening. So one thing that comes up is, like, basically, if we get rid of these legal liabilities, um, these companies like Twitter can be held legally liable for basically anything anyone says on their platforms. Um, and as such, they're just not going to like allow a broad range of speech to ever occur because anything can cause a legal problem. Anything can incur legal fees. They can end up in court for random things. They probably shouldn't even have to be in court for. Um, and as such, they're just going to further restrict in ways that are going to prevent any type of controversial or contentious speech from happening. Isn't it crazy? Just a little little intervention here sends ripples far and wide. And yet, um, I've heard it described, and I'd love to get your take on this. I've heard that the Internet is actually one of the great success stories of, of self-regulation. You know, if, if people want to point, well, show me any time that people have been able to self-regulate and it didn't just spin out of control. Well, you know, the last 30 years has probably been a pretty good example of that. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the really big cases of this recently was Musk buying Twitter, Elon Musk buying Twitter, right? So, like, he comes in, uses the free market to change the policies that he thinks that he disagrees with. You know, he thought it was too restrictive for particularly right-wing or conservative voices, so he comes in and changes the policies. Um, that's one option people have is to start buying. If you, like, if really, if you dislike the policies that these companies have, buy them or, like, change them from the inside out. The other option that came out of this was a bunch of people who disagree with Musk then going, and exiting to a different platform like Mastodon. You know, the current structure that Section 250 rights allows for people to have that freedom of movement between platforms and to then go into platforms that they disagree with and fundamentally transform them from the inside out. Is it likely that uh, that government will stay in its lane or are there just, there are just too many people reaching for that steering wheel and <laughs> trying to get them, you know, to, to address issues like this? <laughs> I think it's hard to predict at this stage, but I do think, you know, first, you know, first things first, we need to be protecting this. We need to be vocally protecting this law. I think part of the problem is that laws like this are so obscure. They're so wonky that the average person doesn't understand how it actually impacts their life. But I think effectively communicating this information to people will give them the tools they need to reach out to their congressional members and say, hey, if this ever comes with it, if a bill ever comes on your, you know, table that says, change section 230 or you know let's say scotus or supreme court rules against section 230 here you know they can say hey i want you to write a bill an actual congressional bill that adds some extra protections right making clear why this matters to people i think is the first step because i think it's really difficult for people you know it's just so bogged down with legal jargon that you know it can get confusing well and there seems to be a rising uh, a rising tide of uh, need to control what's called disinformation out there. And, of course, that can be a very subjective call. That uh, that concerns me a great deal simply because, uh, you know, whoever happens to be in power or have access to the levers of power could, uh, could pretty handily shut down a lot of uh, content simply by calling it disinformation. 
Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I've written on uh, the follies of defining misinformation versus different disinformation in the past and how subjective all this is. Um, and I think it's interesting, right? Like these conservative, a lot of conservatives right now are calling for Section 230 to be abolished or severely curtailed alongside the progressives who want to use government power to regulate misinformation, disinformation that will do harm them. They're not seeing how government is this tool that's getting used by whoever happens to be in power and one day you're going to be at the end of the gun. You know what I mean? In the theoretical gun, not the real one here, but yeah. No, it's a good point and I, I wish more people would, would take that into consideration. I, I've heard it said anytime someone says, you know, there needs to be a law about this, you just invited a man with a gun to sit down at the table with you. Yep. Take that for what <laughs> it's worth. Um, talk to me about the ACLU and other civil liberties uh, organizations. There was a time where I felt like I knew where the ACLU was coming from. In recent years, sometimes I'm a little bit like, really, they support this now. But as far as free speech, as far as uh, content online, are they doing an okay job of, of defending free speech, or have they have they seen some wander in, in their mission as well? Yeah, I'm definitely there with you without really understanding exactly what a the ACLU has been doing the past few years. But I actually think this is a good case where they have, you know, really stepped up and uh, stood up to both sides of the, you know, political aisles, both sides of the political, both part, political parties, both sides, um, and stood up for free speech in a really principled manner. They, alongside a bunch of other smaller uh, pro-free speech organizations, published an amicus brief regarding this, uh, both of these cases, uh, try, calling to protect Section 230 and, um, you know, to rule against any additional curtailments of online speech. So I think they've actually really stood up as... Um, big protectors and defenders of free speech right in the past few months. Okay, so let's summarize this for, for people who, who need a, a takeaway. If, if they take nothing away from this, because this can be kind of a complicated subject, but uh, as, as far as uh, free speech and government, what are some things that you would like people to remember from the conversation that we've had here today? Yeah, I think the first thing I want to say is just because you don't like something that happens in your day-to-day -day life doesn't mean that the government needs to be interfering. Amen. That's the first big one. <laughs> <laughs> the second thing is Section 230 is this really complex law that makes our current internet possible. And I think I want to encourage people to be grateful about what we have and understand why we have it and why it is the way it is and how fragile in many ways this law is and like this you know sort of infrastructure is and that change these all these these massive changes are going to fundamentally change the way we interact with the internet the way we're able to express ourselves and our opinions on the internet and probably in ways that we don't currently foresee or in ways that we're not going to like so generally gonna say probably gonna go against any new incur you know government incursions on our day-to-day -day, uh speech and life Okay. And I, I would just add to that what everything he said, plus when you find yourself getting angry, take a breath, take a deep breath and ask yourself, do I really want to get government involved in this in, in the first place? Elijah Gullet, thank you so much. Where can people follow you? Where can they find your work? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Market Urbanists with an S at the end on Twitter.com. I publish all of my articles there as well as my general thoughts. 